Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm Dave Rome. And I'm Kaylee Fretz. Sadly, we are without our resident pro mechanic today, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Gruppetto, who I believe is working on his new hobby of home-churned butter. Weird. We have to check. Yeah, we'll have to check in on him later and see how that's going. I think he's still churning. <laughs> but we nevertheless... But we nevertheless have yet another outstanding episode here for you today, full of the latest in tech news, including rumors of a wireless Shimano Dura-Ace electronic group set, dun, some, dun, musings dun. On, mm-hmm, some musings on in-house component brands, and we'll once again finish off with a round of Ask the Mechanic, seeing as how one mechanic is gone, but there are three left. How's everyone doing today? I'm great. Andy Van Bergen wants us to say something. Oh, Andy Van Bergen is in charge of our uh, membership program, just so everyone knows. What would Andy like us all to know? Well, Andy, who runs Velo Club, uh, our membership program, would like me to remind you that Cycling Tips has kind of been there for you this crazy year. We've been a distraction, hopefully an inspiration, a bit of escapism, perhaps. And this is me saying that you maybe need to be there for us. You can do that by supporting Cycling Tips as a member for as little as 79 US dollars a year, which works out to about two cups of coffee a month. Pretty pretty minimal. As a way of saying thank you, we will send you a copy of our annual Coffee Table magazine. It is in production as we speak and will ship at the end of the year. Existing members, you'll have seen these before. They are gorgeous, and this year's is going to be even better. So if you love Cycling Tips, if you love what we do, if you love the fact that Dave Rome and James and Zach are honest with you on this podcast, they tell you what they really think, they tell you what you really need to know, well, we can do that because of Fellow Club. So... If you love Cycling Tips and what we stand for, head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up to support everything we do here. Thank you. I thank you. Andy thanks you. James and Dave thank you. I thank you. you. Everybody thanks you. We definitely all thank you because it's very nice having a job right now. I'm very appreciative of that. We like jobs. Yeah. They're good. How's everyone doing today? Pretty good. I'm in Boston. I'm about to drive... 30 hours from here back to Colorado, although I'm not sure why I'm doing it because Colorado is currently on fire, and I feel like yes. I might be better off staying here for a little bit longer. However, my ballot is waiting for me in Boulder, and I have to get back to vote. So yes. I am headed back this weekend, but at the moment I'm in Boston, lobstering. It's great. Can you uh, can you maybe bring back some lobster for me? I'd really appreciate it because I grew up on the East Coast, and... I absolutely, absolutely love fresh seafood. And like, you know, like my mom used to go down to the dock and just bring home live crab and lobster all the time. And it turns out that that sort of stuff is kind of hard to get off the boat here in Colorado. <laughs> the boats rarely make it to Colorado. It's true. They, they, they very don't. They try to. It. They try yeah. to, but they just don't quite make it here. Uh, we actually were talking about this because so my brother has been talking about sending us lobster for a while. This is an insane tangent on the Nerd Alert podcast, but we're going to do it anyway. He's been talking about sending me lobster for a while because he has this little boat and he has five lobster traps and a license for it. And he pulls like, you know, five, six, seven lobsters every time he goes out, which 
in Colorado is like $200 with a lobster because we have to fly it to us. Anyway, he was talking about packing it all up, putting it on ice, and, and shipping it to me overnight at some point. Because I, too, grew up here and missed my lobster. So maybe okay. we could just stuff it in the, in the back of the truck with some ice and bring some back for you. Yes. Well, seeing as how you have failed miserably to bring me back chocolate from Europe <laughs> on the multiple times that I have asked you to bring it back for me, then I feel like this is the absolute least you could do, and I will be happy to compensate your brother for his efforts. <laughs> Unnecessary. Unnecessary. And lobsters can't melt, so they'll be fine. Yeah. They can't melt, but they can die. And <laughs> a dead die. lobster in the back of your Toyota would not be so pleasant. <laughs> anyway, yeah. maybe we should bikes. get back... Maybe we should get back on track and let's get into the news. So dropping a couple of days ago is news from tiny UK outfit Ratio Technology that they've developed a super neat sounding retrofit kit that adapts current 11 speed SRAM road shifters to work with SRAM Eagle 12 speed rear derailleurs to give you a mechanical one by 12 drivetrain. So why is this a big deal? Because while SRAM currently offers a wireless electronic 12 speed setup, that works really well, admittedly. It's also really expensive, and in the gravel and adventure categories in which these sorts of drivetrains are kind of most likely to be used, a lot of people just prefer the simplicity and serviceability of a cable-actuated setup. So the kit includes a new ratchet for the shifter, a new cable fin for the rear derailleur, and a few bits of hardware, and it's all well under $100. I have one inbound. I'm super stoked to try it out. What do you think of this? Can I, can I ask some clarifying questions? Uh, so you can absolutely ask clarifying questions. So, so you take an 11 speed rear derailleur, right? No, you take an 11 speed shifter, an 11 speed shifter. SRAM road shifter. Okay. And I put a new like ratchet thingy in it. Yes. And I use my Eagle rear derailleur Correct. and match it to a 12 speed Eagle rear derailleur. Correct. Ah, I like, yeah. I like this and, a lot. And then even better, if you consider the fact that 12 speed spacing is the same between SRAM, Shimano, and rotor cassettes for that matter, it actually suddenly gives you a whole lot of possibilities for a 1x12 mechanical drivetrain that does not currently exist right now. Because like right now, I have a set inbound from, uh, from Ratio, so I've got some bits here that I can kind of cobble together to make a drivetrain. Um, but I'm going to run this with an 1146 rotor 12-speed cassette, which mm. I think is pretty cool. One, because it's really quite light. Um, you know, having used some rotor stuff before, I think it'll shift just fine. The spread, I think, is a really nice sweet spot for 12-speed gravel that doesn't really exist from SRAM or Shimano. Um, and it'll go on a regular Shimano Hyperglide Freeha body instead of an XDR. It's true. I mean, people have been asking SRAM and Shimano basically for that cassette option for quite a while, and they haven't done it yet. Yeah, and like, because right now they have, like, on the 12 speed side, it goes up to, what is it, a 1036, I think now. And then mm-hmm. on the 12, 12 speed mountain bike side, it's, you know, it was 1050, now it's 1052. Like, so there's this big, huge hole in the middle. Um, and then, like, with Shimano, you have, what is it, 1146 or something like that. Um, and that's a really good spread, but that's for 11 speeds. So you've got bigger gaps in the middle, and like, it's just, like, it's just not quite there from either of the, the two major companies. Um, what I'm really curious about, though, is the fact how you know Ratio has done this by 3D printing a new stainless steel ratchet ring for the shifter and by printing a reinforced nylon cable fin for the rear derailleur so that all the cable pull ratios match up, so all the indexing is right. 
all they had to do is produce those two pieces and they have a 12-speed compatible SRAM shifter that works with an existing SRAM rear derailleur. Why hasn't SRAM done this yet? <laughs> Who knows? Very good question. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I mean, as soon as they do, then these these poor guys over at Ratio are are a little bit out of luck, right? I mean, they they filled a gap in the market that exists because the major players have just forgotten about it or left it for whatever reason. And as soon as those major players close that gap, then then they're going to have to find some other gap to try to fill. But in the meantime, I, lo- I think it's a great solution. I mean, the fact that you can now build this whole thing, and particularly since you don't have to, you don't have to go wireless, you can do it for so much cheaper. It's it's massive for for gravel fans. I think my pessimistic view is that SRAM may be doing this uh, to not cannibalize their existing wireless sales, or may not be doing this. Um, well, because currently there's no real competition in this space, as you say, right? Like Shimano is still at 11 speed for their GRX, uh, and then you you know you can't quite get Shimano mountain bike 12 speed to fit your gravel bike, or not easily at the moment. So, yeah, I guess you know at the moment SRAM is technically ruling the roost in this market with uh, its 12 speed wireless. So you know perhaps they're they're looking at it from a business point of view and just saying we'll we'll do it when we have to. I guess, but I guess one thing that I, you know, I don't know the numbers, you know, SRAM sale, uh, I don't know SRAM's sales numbers. And I will agree with you that when it comes to wide range one by gravel drivetrains, that they do have basically, well, I guess with the exception of Campagnolo now, I mean, up until very recently, they had the, they had cornered the market. There really was no competition. I mean, Shimano, again, offers a one by setup that just doesn't, it's just not as good in terms of gear ratios and range and stuff. However, SRAM has a lot of fans on the mechanical side on the road. Mm. And by not doing anything with their road groups, with their road mechanical groups, as I should say, for really a pretty long time now, it seems like they have basically just sort of just given up and just surrendered that territory to Shimano. I have Red 22 on my mosaic and I love it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I'd just, love I've been Sram swapping mechanical. back. Yeah, I've been swapping back and forth between that bike and a, a Cervelo Caledonia that I have in to test, which has ETAP. And I, I, I kind of like the Red Twenty Two more. Yeah, I'm not gonna and lie. And that's amazing because it's like what? It's an eight, nine year old group set at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which, which is why the idea of this whole thing is so exciting to me because, you know, just the the thought of being able to run a twelve speed SRAM setup and have all that range and have all the functionality that people have been asking for is is super appealing. But the idea of being able to have an updated 2x12 SRAM mechanical road group set that is, you know, potentially just as competitively light as Red used to be, um, you know, all the the neat ergonomic features. I personally really like the double tap shift mechanism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just seems like there are so many positives on the table here that it just blows my mind that they haven't done it yet. Yep. Yep. How difficult is the ratchet swap? Like, can your average home mechanic get this done? Can 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 you actually pull your shifter apart and get it back together? And I mean, because I know a lot of these shifters are not really intended to be like worked on. They're I mean, kind of I, one and done, chuck it in the bin when it breaks, kind of thing. I personally think it is. I mean, I I've done it myself. I mean, mostly just you know removing and then reinstalling ratchets for you know on the left hand side, um, but. One of the nice things about SRAM shift, uh, one of the nice things about SRAM's shifter design is that, you know, yes, it's not necessarily the most straightforward thing to do, but it is serviceable, and there are not that many parts in it. 
Um, and then, you know, ratio has instructional videos on how to do all this. Like it's really not, I mean, it might seem super daunting, but it's really not that bad. There just mm -hmm. aren't, there aren't nearly as many parts in there as you might think it is. That whole double tap mechanism is pretty simple. Hmm. Can, can I go on a small tangent? Absolutely. You mentioned Campagnolo e-car just a, just a minute ago. Have you been on that anymore since last time we talked about it? Have your opinions changed of it at all? My opinions of it have not changed. Oh, still good? I still like it a lot. Cool. Just make it sure. It is still pretty expensive, <laughs> though. And yeah. and, yeah, I mean, I, I would have to think, I mean, I would have to hope, anyway, that SRAM does have some sort of 12-speed setup kind of waiting in the wings. Um, not really sure what they're waiting for in terms of, you know, if that's true. I'm not sure what they're waiting for in terms of why they haven't released it yet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, ratio might be a little bit out of luck when and if SRAM comes out with their own 12-speed setup. But, I mean, in the meantime, there's an awful lot of 11-speed yeah. levers and stuff out there. Like, it still, it still stands to save people an awful lot of money. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to say that, which is, you know, for, for years, SRAM had, you know, complete dominance over one-by group sets on gravel bikes. You know, if anyone has a gravel bike prior to, you know, 2020 model and it's got one-by shifting, then chances are it's SRAM 11-speed, right? So... Um, yeah, there's a ton of bikes out there that could benefit from this, and uh, you know, a SRAM GX Eagle derailleur is quite cheap, so it's it's a cool upgrade. Yeah, so like I said, I'm super excited to check it out. Um, I mean, I may very well just kind of pit it head to head with a car and see how it goes or not. I mean, again, they're not really entirely competitive, but um, I'm super excited to see how how it all works. They're functionally similar, though. You know, even oh, if yeah. they're not like, even if they're not head-to-head -head competitive from like a price perspective and things like that, the end result once you do this is going to be two pretty similar drivetrains. Very, very much so. So I don't know. We'll see. But you know, the the fact that these you know these two people from the UK have named their company Ratio Technology it kind of suggests to me that this is not going to be the only setup of this uh, of this sort that they do. Um, you know, these, these, these ratchet rings are, you know, they're made using 3d printed, uh, they're, they're made using a 3d printer from stainless steel. So, you know, the development costs are not really that big compared to like, you know, forging and machining, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know, I'm curious to see what else they come up with, because if this thing works as well as it's made out to, then there's an awful lot of potential out there. So we'll find out. Hmm. I mean, in theory, sorry to go on another tangent. Could you... You could put a 13-speed ratchet in there and match it up with the pull ratio of Campagnolo. You could, and there is really actually someone in Germany, I believe, who had already been doing that. I think his name is Dirk Stock or Dirk Stocks, something like that. And and uh, I had found, I think I had found their info on eBay quite a while ago. And this is not a user serviceable thing that you are supposed to send in your shifter to have this retrofit done. Um, and then. Yeah, so I mean that that has been out there for a little while, but again, the fact that it's not something that you can install yourself makes it a lot less appealing to me, especially since I'm not in Europe. Um, but again, I mean the the design of the SRAM shifter is just really conducive to this sort of retrofit because it is so relatively easy to swap out that ratchet. I mean, it's mm -hmm. something that you absolutely cannot do very easily with Shimano the way that that whole thing is set up. I mean, if you start, you know, for any mechanics out there, if any of you have tried taking apart like really, really taking apart a Shimano shifter before, it doesn't go well. What's next on the docket? So at the other end of the drivetrain spectrum, we are hearing rumors, more than rumors, I would say. Uh, there are some patent documents that, that one of our freelancers have, uh, has kind of put in our direction that the next generation of Shimano Dura-Ace Di2 
which we expect sometime in 2021 to coincide with the company's 100th anniversary. Uh, that flagship group set is not only going to be 12-speed Outback, which will surprise not a whole lot of people, but it's also going to be at least, well, the suggestion anyway, is that it's going to be at least partially wireless, which would be a first for Shimano since the IT was first introduced way back in 2008. Mm. Thoughts on this? Because this would be a big one if it's true. I mean, yeah, ETAP's proven that it works, right? All the concerns around people hacking people's drivetrains and things like that, those, none of those have occurred, right? And so we know it can work. It would certainly help with uh, just you know putting bikes together gets a lot easier right it's one less one less wire to have to run through a tube uh you know we're already seeing lots of bikes that are electronic only you know the new the new top end ethos is a perfect example of you can get mechanical with the lower end ones but the top end one is electronic only so i think you know once if shimano comes out with a system that you know maybe the shifters down to the derailers is a wireless and then the two derailers are connected. That's what we've seen sort of thrown around as the possibility. That means that, you know, then you've got two two of the major players with a system that does not need any sort of port on the front of the bike for anything other than a hydraulic line. And I would I would absolutely think that we see, you know, frames designed around wireless systems. And I think it makes sense. Frankly, I, you know, wires are great for a lot of different reasons. But I don't know about you guys, but I found that ETAP wireless has been just as if not more reliable in a lot of ways than the than the wires because i've had wires kink and wires go go wrong you know water gets in somewhere there are issues with wires uh that you don't run into if you don't have wires you run into maybe some different issues but yeah I, i i could definitely see them doing it in fact i would go as far as to say i think they should offer some sort of wireless system so my my main concern with Shimano going wireless is that, I mean, certainly it seems like there are technological solutions for this, but I mean, it seems like you only really notice this when you go back and forth between a SRAM access bike and a Shimano DI2 bike. It is noticeable that the shifters, well, that it is noticeable that the derailers are slower, basically, with SRAM. I mean, just the, it's almost like it takes longer for the signal to be translated or something like that. It's like, it's a very, very small difference, but I, I can't say that it's not noticeable. Um, I'm not going to say that it's necessarily hugely problematic either, but anytime that I've gotten on a SRAM bike and then back on a Shimano bike, I'm like, whoa, those shifts are happening way faster. So I'd be really Particularly curious. The front. To, yeah, I'd be really curious to see if Shimano assuming this is true i'd be really curious to see what their solution is for kind of maintaining that shift speed that they have with wired because it's really really good um but as far as the whole wired versus wireless thing in general the thing that i keep coming back to is is the fact that you know ultimately shimano's bread and butter comes from oem contracts you know the fact that they are spec on stock complete bikes right and in that sense sram is obviously hugely beneficial at the factory because it's just like you said it's so much easier to put together it is so much easier. Like just the fact that you don't have to fish all that stuff through, and and not only just the fact that you don't have to fish the wires through, you also don't have all those. You know, I don't even know how many different lengths of wires SRAM. Or I don't even know how many lengths of wires Shimano has for a DI2, but it's a long list. Many. And then at that, yeah. And then at that point, you don't have to figure out what length wire you're going to run. If if it is, you know, say the shifters are connected to each other, or maybe they're not even connected to each other, but 
let's say there is sort of like a cockpit assembly up front and then the derailleurs are connected to each other with another battery yeah at that point if if the front and rear are not connected anymore you presumably could do with single wire lengths at that point and then you wouldn't have any of this variability it'd be so much easier for, at the factory to put di2 bikes together which would then save those factories money or save those oem c customers money right yeah which is i mean what it all comes down to it what they want to do because it turns out all these companies exist to make money weird <laughs> people forget that about bike companies sometimes i think and they get yelling about ah they're just trying to sell me stuff well yes <laughs> they, they are they, they, they are, are commercial entities <laughs> weird <laughs> that weird. is exactly what they're trying to do yeah uh, i'm so, not sure I mean, why you're surprised <laughs> yeah i mean so you know wireless is presumably more complicated although like you said Kaylee, i mean i certainly have not noticed that sram is any more problematic or any less reliable than than shimano i mean like you said i mean the problems are just different um yeah. you know there would be more batteries to charge presumably um i mean the shimano the shimano di2 system is sort of legendary for its battery longevity and you know i'd be curious to see what happens to that because you know wireless certainly eats up more juice um but I mean, you would have to think that if anyone's going to engineer the crap out of this, it's going to be Shimano, and you know, SRAM has proven that it's possible. It'd be really interesting to see if Shimano can pull it off as well, because I think, you know, while I personally think that Wired is just fine, at least once everything is put together. Um, again, like looking at it from an OEM perspective, there is a lot of appeal in having it be wireless. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll drop a we'll drop that article on the Shimano patents soon. Uh, probably in the next couple of days. So keep an eye out for that. So we'll find out what's going on there. Haven't we seen spy shots? Wasn't it on Venipol's bike? We haven't seen spy shots. We have seen, we've seen a bunch of photos that were supposedly or that people thought were spy shots. Um, but a lot of people seem to forget that, you know, those wires are small and that when you're looking at bikes for a long way away, it's really easy to miss the wire that's just tucked up against the dropout. Everything that I've seen has not been suggestive to me that it's new Dura's. Hmm. There you go. Moving on. Speaking of OEM, kind of want to get to our main topic of the day here because yeah, you know, we've we've discussed at length in previous episodes, I think, the idea of kind of in-house brands and just sort of, you know, house brands in general like, you know, Bontrager, Roval, that sort of thing. What I find interesting is how many of us are now finding ourselves talking about these brands yeah, pretty much on level footing with more established aftermarket brands like, you know, DT Swiss, Envy, Zip, and others, at least in terms of, you know, the actual performance that they offer, maybe not in terms of reputation and cachet, that sort of thing. Um, but I recently had a conversation with Giant's global marketing director, An Lee, and they, their head of product and marketing for the company's Kadex gear division, their new high-end gear division, Jeff Schneider, to chat about the challenges of trying to pit a house brand or what is perceived as a house brand against the major players. So let's see what Ahn and Jeff have to say about this and we'll discuss it on the other side. Giant is no stranger to making its own componentry, as we all know, uh, but at last year's Tour de France, you launched a standalone brand called Kadex for the higher end stuff, uh, presumably in a bid to establish it as a, a legitimate aftermarket brand completely separate from Giant. So first and foremost, what I wanna ask, I mean, uh, you know, the three of us have been around the bike industry for a long time, so the Kadex name is actually something that we are all familiar with. 
A lot of people listening to this, however, maybe have never or had never heard of that name before last year's tour. So what exactly is Cadex and why are you bothering with a separate brand? Thanks, James. And first of all, thanks for the opportunity to, to tell the Cadex story. And you're right, we launched sort of what I would call the reimagined Cadex last, last year at the Tour de France. Um, and for, for people like, like you and I and Jeff who've been around, um, you know, Cadex is, is a name that people remember from the 80s, right? It, it really indicated um, this pioneering approach from Giant to make carbon fiber bikes. Uh, back then, that was something that, you know, was not available to the masses. Um, and so as we, as we went into looking at, you know, creating a, a premium component line, um, you know, we had many options, right? You could create your own name, you could, you could buy a brand, um, or, you know, we looked deeper back into our sort of our history. And what was really cool about Kdex um, was really the idea of the moonshot um, back in like the, the, the 80s when uh, Tony Lowe, our CEO, wanted to do something that was, hasn't, hasn't been done before, something that was really radical. Um, and that DNA of Kdex. Uh, so back then, being radical meant making carbon fiber bikes, right? And that was pretty radical. Um, the the whole idea of doing something uh, as a moonshot, something that some nobody's done before, resonated with us, and it really matched what we wanted to do with Kdex in the future. Uh, and so it just naturally became um, a name that we all felt was the right approach. Um, and you're right, that, you know, since launch, we have people who you know sent us images of their beautifully kept Kdex bikes um, and are really stoked about it. And then we have a lot of the new athletes that we sponsor have no idea. They're just really happy that, you know, they have something that's that's just pinnacle performance. So it's been a really interesting mix. I just want to point out that a lot of those athletes weren't alive when KDX was around. Yeah. For example, Gustav Eden, you know, 70.3 70 world champion that we just picked up. Like he he has no idea. He, he may, you know, now know, but... Um, and that's been really fun to, to see the differences between people, like I said, who have these great memories of Kdex and then those who are like, oh, cool. It's a cool name. Sounds cool. Sounds techie. Um, and then when they get the product, you know, it's, it's, it's a home run. So, um, so it's been really a, an interesting year to observe and understand, you know, the, the brand perception from, uh, from consumers and, and uh, uh, from various markets. Cool. Jeff, the, the Kdex line is it's pretty small, um, and I think that's by intent, at least right now. So can you run us through real quick just what exactly is under the Kdex umbrella right now? Yeah, when we when we first entered into this project, we started looking at the bike, and everybody knows that one of the biggest upgrades you can do is in the wheel system. Um, it's, it's the first product that if you put a good quality product on your bike, you can feel it. So the target was to create a wheel system. And I use the term system because we're not looking at the wheel as just a collection of parts to kind of make a really cool piece. You can make a light wheel, you can make a, a stiff wheel, but sometimes making a light wheel that's stiff is a, is a big challenge or making a stiff wheel light is a big challenge. So we started looking at each individual component and how they react with the wheel to create a complete wheel system. Uh, this extends even out to the tire as well um, and how it interfaces with the rim. So the lineup is basically, um, we have a 42, uh, 42 millimeter wheel, we have a 65 millimeter wheel, and then we have our TT four spoke and our TT disc wheel. 
And then uh, with some cool technologies that we have internally, we created this new saddle called the Kadex Boost Saddle. Um, it, it only comes in one shape right now, but it, uh, you know, it's 138 gram, incredibly good saddle. And, and, and so far to date, not anybody who's tested it has come back and said, yeah, this doesn't work for me. So um, it's, it's small for now and we're we're targeting you know in the future obviously to grow the line but the main focus right now is to make sure that we created that pinnacle product as a wheel system so i've ridden the boost saddle and I, i'll i'll proudly say that uh, i'm i'm one of the people who you know for whom that saddle works really well um and i've been riding the the, the 42 mil deep wheels um i haven't really spent much time on the 65s but um you know, you've got a lot of interesting stuff going on on that wheel. You have, you know, a, a pretty interesting rim shape that seems to work pretty well. You've got these molded carbon fiber spokes that are, you know, basically like bladed stainless steel spokes in carbon fiber, so they're lighter. Um, I mean, overall, the wheels seem really, really good. That said, I mean, you can also say that for other, you know, so-called in-house brands from, you know, from Bontrager and Raval, and the thing that that I can't help but notice is, you know, you have these niche brands, these 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 standalone, uh, these standalone aftermarket brands like you know, DT Swiss, Envy, uh, you know, Zip, so on and so forth. You know, brands that that have this history of being standalone up up market, like kind of aspirational products. And on the surface, you know, if you just look at the numbers and the specs and the and the raw performance that you can get. You know the the products that that you have, or again for that matter, like a lot of stuff from Revolve, Bontrager. I mean, all this stuff is really competitive for sure. I mean, and and in some ways, it's it's almost better than some of the the aftermarket stuff. But with that being said, I mean, cycling is you know whether or not people like it, it's it's also still kind of a fashion industry, and people are really hung up on brand names and how things look and how things sound and that sort of thing. Um, so given that Kdex, you uh, is not really a brand right now, certainly that has this long history of offering really good value, like Giant does, for example. You really seem to be basing the, the the success of this company on the performance of the stuff. So, how do you deal with that fashion industry and you know, that sort of perception thing? And like, what are the challenges that you face here with introducing a brand new brand? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, James, and and one that we know is not a a one year, you know, journey, right? It's it's a long time, long journey to get to where KDEX is not only perceived as, you know, pinnacle product, but also there's a strong emotional connection to the brand. And that takes time. For, at launch, our focus really was going back to what Jeff talked about, which is this pursuit of pinnacle product. We feel like at the high end, at this level of performance, we wanted to make sure that what we're delivering to the market is pinnacle product that is you know, no fluff, right? Because that's that's kind of where part of our DNA as a company, not just Kdex, but as a company, is is making really great product, not a lot of gimmicks, uh, and delivering on that promise of pinnacle product. As we move ahead into the future, um, you know, much more investment in marketing for sure, uh, and and really investment in bringing the brand to life. Uh, to be honest, we had some really great plans this year. Um, that um, was really put on hold because of the pandemic. Um, but we had great plans to, to, to get out there and connect with consumers um, and also retail partners uh, in a different way than we would with Giant or other brands that are within the Giant group. So 
for us, it's a long-term commitment. You know, we start with innovation, we start with product, because that's where the strength is from the giant group. But we know that with KDEX, it requires a different approach to marketing, a different approach to consumer engagement. Uh, so look for more of that in the future. So I've always kind of held the opinion that as far as product development and marketing goes, that you know the marketing part becomes relatively easy or at least easier when you have good product to build on as opposed to you know trying to spin something that is just kind of mediocre so at least to me um and i want to point out that this is not a sponsored segment or anything like i legitimately think these wheels are really good um to me i feel like you do have that really good product base to start with and you know you're dealing with again this sort of the stigma of potentially being perceived as a house brand so what what is the marketing plan i mean how do you how do you shed that stigma? I mean, again, like, you know, looking at, at the marketing collateral for KDEX, I think, you know, aside from, from launching on, uh, you know, team bikes and that sort of thing, I mean, and having a very little bit of spec at the top, top end of giants, uh, stock bikes, uh, you're not really seeing giant, the giant brand being associated with KDEX a whole lot. So, you know, is this just sort of a long-term play? Like you're saying, like, you know, how do you make a brand cool? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with KDEX, you know, I, I think cool is, is part of it, but we want to make the, the brand legitimate, right? Um, and you're right. Thanks for noticing. You know, when we launched KDEX, we didn't simply want it to be a house brand uh, within Giant Group. Um, and so we, we purposely, you know, made sure that we developed, established, you know, separate teams that were on working on KDEX. Um, and then given that freedom to not necessarily always have to include giant products uh, in a photo shoot. Um, in fact, you know, encouraging that we, we celebrate and partner with uh, bike brands or retailers outside of the giant uh, community. Um, because we really do believe that KDEX is a standalone brand that can elevate the performance of any bike, not just giant. Uh, and so that's, that's where the start, you know, that's the premise and that's getting support from the top down, right? Because if you don't have that support, if you don't have that commitment globally to say, hey, we're going to feature this bike. It's from our key competitors, but it's for KDEX. So don't get don't get too upset, you know, if this bike is going to get more likes than than the giant TCR that we posted last week. Um, and, and for us, it's, it's, it's all about making sure that we as a company are really clear on the brand positioning of KDEX and where it fits within the other brands uh, in our company. Uh, and so, so far, so good. You know, it's something that Jeff and I constantly have to remind the team to say, hey, this is KDEX. This is about pinnacle product. Um, and if we stay true to that positioning and continue to invest in, in marketing and innovation, you know, I think we have a long term play that that will be successful. So on the one hand, it seems like. You know, I don't think anyone would argue that you know KDEX has a bit of an uphill struggle here. Again, just sort of starting from nothing, essentially, uh, in terms of brand perception. But do you feel like having the backing of Giant uh, being under that umbrella is also kind of kind of an advantage in a lot of ways? I mean, because you know, if if I had a if I had a big old check, I could just go over and you know buy wheels from or buy rims from Carbotech and some hubs from Bitex and some pillar spokes and pay someone in Taiwan to put all this stuff together and start a wheel brand. Woohoo. Um, but, <laughs> and, I mean, and, many, and many have done that, right? And many have done that. And many still are. Um, <laughs> but it, it certainly takes a lot more work to, you know, to have all this stuff, you know, be, be developed completely in house. I mean, 
you know, yes, you're using DT Swiss internals on the rear hub, but I mean, who doesn't? And, you know, people are doing that for good reason because they're really good, but everything else is, you know, proprietary stuff that you've developed in-house. So do you, you know, does being under that giant umbrella, I mean, is that really the only way that you're able to pull that thing off? Well, you know, I mean, so speaking as a product guy, I mean, obviously the engineering power, the material expertise, um, the capital that's behind giant, the brand, you know, the group, um, all that comes into play and makes it a lot easier for us to accomplish what we need to accomplish. Um, a lot of these guys come up with an idea, but then they got to go find the parts. Um, I think of, you know, I mean, let's face it, a KEDEX wheel is not a cheap date. I mean, it's, it's, it's an expensive wheel. You're talking, you know, $3,000 plus, depending on, on which wheel you're buying. Um, and, and we looked at the market and we felt like there were the guys, you know, like your lightweights that were way up here. I mean, five, $6,000 wheel sets, great wheels. I mean, Ineos rode them. They went out and bought them for the team. I mean, it was, it, they were great wheels. And then you have everybody else, which if you, if you really break down the nuts and bolts of what they have, a lot of them have a DT based hub or they have, uh, you know, some other aftermarket hub. And then they have a, a pretty decent carbon rim. And then they all use DT or Supreme spokes. And when you break down the components of the wheel, we are competitive when it comes to weight. And, and in many cases, we're still lighter than anybody, but it's a matter of where you put the, the, the weight. One thing about KDEX that's different than the others, and, and I think the carbon spoke is a massive part of what we're doing in the sense that, just to break it down for you, the carbon spoke, if you, if you took a, a 1300 gram pair of wheels, from one of our competitors and you compare it to a 1300 gram wheel that we have, you know, 1298. Um, if you break it down by components, it's where you're putting the weight and how you're applying the weight that makes the biggest difference when it comes to performance. So you started the hub, right? You can make the, the hub lightweight by putting titanium and aluminum and ceramics and other bits and pieces in there. But I mean, how does that benefit the rider that much? It's all at the center of the, the wheel. You don't have to move that weight. It's not really benefiting you. But as you move away from the hub out to the rim, how you can uh, place the material within that wheel really makes a biggest the biggest difference. I mean, James, you've ridden the wheels. They have that snappy when you pedal. It's just, they're super quick. And, and that's the number one um, experience that we get from our racers is they put the load into the pedal and they go forward very quickly. They just feel like they jump forward. The, the spoke itself, if you break it down, let's take a disc brake wheel system, for example. There's about 90 spokes total in the entire system. Um, or I'm sorry, not 90 spokes. There's 45 spokes in the entire system. We're coming in at about two grams lighter than a DT spoke. Well, what does that mean? It's 46% lighter per spoke in the wheel. So our competitor that's using a stainless steel spoke has 46% rotational weight that they've built into their bike. So the carbon spoke is a real key feature. And I, and I can tell you, it wasn't a cheap date and it wasn't easy to create that piece. It actually created some delays in the initial delivery of the product so that we could finalize and optimize that spoke. Um, think of it, it's literally a, a forged carbon spoke um, because you can't stick a little tiny bladder on the inside to compress the, 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 the carbon. Then you take it out into the rim and we, we've gone with a hookless rim. And the reason we've gone hookless is there's, there's a bunch of different beliefs in this. And we, we all know it's a contentious discussion in the tire rim compatibility world. But when you go to a hookless rim, you can remove a lot of the excess weight that you put into the rim 
and actually make the wheel more durable and stronger because you no longer have to cut the carbon in order to create the shape that you need for that hooked rim. So all of these things without a strong engineering team would be very difficult to, to, to do unless you have people who have the experience with the material and know how to benefit the material. Right, and I guess it's worth noting that, um, again, aside from like the cartridge bearings and the DT Swiss internals, that sort of thing. I mean, Giant is manufacturing all this stuff in-house, correct? Well, let, let me correct, yeah, let me correct one thing. Um, the KDX wheels come with our own hub internals. They are not DT hub internals. We developed our oh, own really? ratchet Oops. driver system. Um, and it actually, we were, we were in development of this before the XP came out, but it's a single spring, super low friction hub internal. We're using a 30 tooth on our current wheels right now but our 30 tooth ratchet driver will actually take a higher load than the 16 tooth from DT's star ratchet system. So um, we're, these, these, are, these wheels are in, internally built 100%. I mean, we're doing the rims, the, the spokes, the hubs, the assembly, everything right now is internal. Five years from now, I mean, on you've said that this is a long-term play for KDX and Giant. This is not sort of like a one, two-year flash in the pan, like, oh, you know, this isn't working. Let's just, you know, stick them on Giants top to bottom. Um, you know, five years from now, what does success look like for KDX? Like, what what would, it doesn't have to be like sales numbers or anything like that. Like, you know, what, what would that look like to you? Yeah, I'll start. You know, for, for me, success would look like if, if somebody's, you know, top of mind if they want to just elevate their performance, um, KDX comes to mind, you know. We all know that, you know, upgrading uh, makes a big difference uh, in, in performance, depending on what it is, right? Wheels, tires. Um, and so for me, it's it's being top of mind when somebody thinks about like, how do I, how do I just become faster? How do I elevate my performance? Oh, KDEX, that's top of mind. Um, so that, that for me is really important. Uh, but of course, with that comes a ton of commitment in terms of continuing the product innovation that Jeff talked about. But more importantly, like you'd mentioned, James, like creating a brand, you know, creating a brand that people can emotionally connect to. Uh, because I agree, you know, the technology and the innovation we have, it's now connecting that to that consumer experience that I think is much more of a long-term commitment. But so for me, in short, Five years from now, I want us to be top of mind. You know, when somebody thinks, I'm going to build my dream bike, what am I going to put on it? Well, I'm going to put KDX wheels for sure. Uh, plus, you know, other things that are in the works. All right. So I guess, you know, five years from now, if we're, you know, seeing somebody with their custom crumpton or something like that and with a, with a set of KDX wheels on it at the handmade bike show, then I guess that'll, that'll count. You actually hit that uh, on the spot, you know, really looking at, you know, these dream builds and being part of that conversation and maybe being top of top of mind in that conversation. Cool. Awesome. Well, Jeff and on, thanks so much for your time. I guess we'll see how this all goes. Good luck to you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, James. And thanks for the opportunity again. All right. So first and foremost, why do we think there is such a stigma attached to in-house brands anyway? Uh, I believe this stems from the fact that why these brands came to be. So, you know, if you look back, if you go back maybe a decade ago in the industry, a lot of the bike brands started to do their own wheels and do their own cockpit components and do their own saddles because uh, I believe it was 
purely a business decision that stopped consumers um, having the ability to directly price compare between bike brands, right? So previously, you know, if a, if a bike had some Mavic Serium wheels and the other one had a Mavic Serium wheel and had Durace components, you could be like, okay, you know, you could directly price compare the two and figure out which one was the best value. And then... Uh, Trek started specking Bontrager wheels on their bikes. And you're like, well, now I have no idea how a Bontrager wheel compares to a Mavic wheel. Uh, and then, you know, all the other brands followed suits. And we're at a point now that that's no longer the case. These brands aren't doing that necessarily to confuse consumers or to stop price comparing. But I think there is still that stigma in place. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this practice can be can be credited back to um, actually Stella Yu, who is in charge of of the Taiwanese company Velo, which uh, I wrote an article about this quite a while ago about Stella, about how she's you know basically arguably the most powerful woman in all of cycling, mainly because you know save for very 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 few companies, pretty much every saddle that's on a bike on the market right now is made by Velo, uh, at least the vast majority of them, certainly at the higher end, and she had pushed companies very early on to basically stop using these third-party aftermarket brands as OEM spec on their bikes because I think the story that she told me, you know, she was sitting in her car. I think it was, I think she said she had a Mercedes or something at the time. And, you know, she was looking around and, you know, it doesn't say, you know, whatever component supplier is, you know, actually makes the stuff on this, the stereo and the heating and cooling equipment, that sort of thing. It just says Mercedes on it. And to her, she was like, why shouldn't all these bikes just say, giant or specialized or whatever because then at that point they can make it all themselves and make more money and you know it should just be the bike brand and not all these other ones you know, like why why are they sharing the, the the glory so to speak yeah i mean i think that sort of to add to to dave's point is the other reason why there's a stigma is because it did it just felt like a cost-cutting measure in a lot of ways like even even in addition to confusing consumers and and trying to like prevent you know price comparison it just felt like okay well they put their own stuff on there because it, it was they could get it for cheap, right? Because they they, they cut out the middleman basically. You know, when a, when a company specs a Mavic wheel, Mavic has to make money on that wheel. When a company specs its own wheel, it can kind of just get wrapped into the whole price of the bike, and and yeah, they're taking that margin that would have been going to to Mavic. And so, yeah, I I I, I think that that is I think that sort of rubs. A lot of cyclists the wrong way because it wasn't the way that bikes were put together for so long for so long it was a frame manufacturer frame brand i shouldn't say manufacturer because a lot of them aren't <laughs> a frame brand would you know would would put together all these other parts to to you know to build the bike that they wanted to build and that was like part of picking a bike is like oh this bike comes with sweet wheels and i want these i want them i want the mavics right i want you know, how badly did I want some a set of Siriums in like 2008, you know, I, I badly. <laughs> and I think that that it kind of gets taken away if you just have this sort of almost feels like a like a no brand when it's just a house brand. Right. And they're still struggling with that with that stigma, even though a lot of this stuff is really good now. Yeah. And, and to add to that, when these brands first made the transition from, you know, using third party brands to their own, they were doing it without. Okay, maybe some will argue this, but they were doing it without the research and development into those products that they were putting on their bikes. They were literally just generic products rebranded 
uh, in most cases, you know, from the wheels to the handlebars to the stems, you could go to the Taipei Cycle Show and you could find the exact same stem available that, say, Giant was using or that Trek was using and you could get your brand printed on it for next to nothing. And at that point, you know, the stigma was deserved because that was cuss-cutting stuff. But it's no longer the case. Yeah, so which is why it's, it's so all, interesting. What not what always this, the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not always. <laughs> There's still but a the, lot of like the lack of research bikes and out development. there with, with <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the lack of research and development in these brands, in the, at least in the big brands, you know that that's now changed. You know, they're no longer just looking up the the Taiwanese directory and finding a, a stem. They they are now designing products that are unique to their product ranges. Well, looking at how things are now. It's really intriguing to see how things have developed over time. I mean, so Trek with Bontrager, you know, Bontrager is still a brand that they spec pretty much up and down across the range at their very high end, at the lower end. I mean, it's just, it is their in-house brand for essentially everything that's not a frame, basically. If you look at Roval and Giant's new brand, Kadex, however, it's a little bit of a different tack. You know, Roval kind of used to do this earlier on because, you know, their cheaper wheels were branded Roval. You know, on the on specialized OEM bikes and their expensive wheels were branded Roval. But if you look more recently, I don't think Roval even makes an aluminum road bike wheel anymore. Um, and you know, on the mountain bike side, Roval is really pretty limited to higher end stuff. So Roval really seems to be moving more kind of away from just being this blanket wheel brand for specialized and moving more into the high end spec. Um, and then now, recently, Roval has come out with all these high-end carbon fiber cockpit components that, you know, they're not necessarily competitive cost-wise. Well, I should say they're competitive cost-wise, but they're they're certainly not arguing that people should buy these things based on value. Like, they're not, you know, much cheaper than an NV bar or something like that. And then if you look at Kdex, Kdex is coming in only at the high-end. They don't have any real mid-range spec at all. There is some OEM spec on giant bikes, but only on basically flagship models. And the KX brand, like you just don't really see it a whole lot. Like it, they, they also seem to be adopting this 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 philosophy that KX is going to be a high-end brand and that ha- is how they are going to make this long-term play that to be a viable third-party high-end aftermarket brand. Yeah, KDX is a really interesting one because if you look at the business structure of Giant, they've actually um, siloed it. So they've now got Kdex is on equal footing to the Giant Bicycles brand and to the Live Women's brand. Uh, it's like a completely separate entity. It's actually quite interesting to see. Um, Roval's a little bit like that, but yeah, from a business sense, you know, these brands like they have legitimate separate teams, to separate marketing teams, and uh, you know they are actually trying to run them as a completely separate brand, which is quite interesting. I mean, that was always one of the things that kind of got me about things like Roval, right, is is where we would get we would get an earful from a marketing manager because we described it as a house brand of Specialized, and then the box would show up with Specialized written on the side. Yep. You're like, well, what, what do you want me to – I'm not going to just lie to the readers here. Like, no, this is exactly what it is. It's a house brand of Specialized. That's what I'm going to call it. And Kdex is, is that, right? It is owned by Giant, to be very it clear. Is. You know, the the contact when we have questions about Kdex wheels, at least for me, is the same contact that I have when I have questions about a giant bicycle. And so, yes, they are trying to separate it out as this, as this its own entity, but I still think they're going to have an uphill battle on that front, right? Yeah. I mean... There's still going to be the stigma that we talking that we were talking about, which is not going to go away 
in part because that is still exactly what's happening on a lot of lower end bikes. I mean, think about all the the Fujis and things like that that get sold for fifteen hundred bucks that are yeah. just covered in what is it? Is it o- oval? oval? Oval that's on Fuji. Same thing, right? And, and you know, and you and you use well, that stuff, and, and the handlebars weigh twenty seven pounds, and you're like, well, that's not a particularly nice piece of material. That that is the, that's what they're still running into. Yeah, they also have the separate issue, however, of naming a wheel company oval. It's just not. <laughs> Just better than good. square. I mean, I mean, Oval Concepts started as like an aero accessories brand, which is kind of where the Oval name came from because, you know, Oval is more aero than round, right? Yep. Um, but then, you know, Fuji basically just took that label that they bought and slapped it onto wheels because they needed a brand for their in-house wheels. And it just doesn't quite work as well. Yeah. Anyway. I, I feel like most consumers see right through stuff like that and they should just call them Fuji wheels. Like, why do, why yeah. do you need a separate brand? Why? I don't, Why? Doesn't right. make any sense to me. So, which is kind of not why, a branding expert, but I think it's know, stupid. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of why it was a little, little perplexing a while ago when you know we got this info that that Reserve, you know, basically the house wheel brand of Santa Cruz, um, they were coming out with road wheels that we know now are spec on sister brand uh, Cervelo bikes. Uh, it's all under the Pond umbrella, and you know these wheels didn't really seem to be particularly special or unique compared to the other stuff out there and and i think we played i think we called that very correctly that it was basically just an oem play it was a way for them to say like you know hey look these wheels are sweet they come stock on these bikes you know they retail for three grand or whatever like look at these awesome wheels that you're getting on this bike this bike's such a good deal you know that personally i feel like doesn't work very well but what i think is really much more interesting is the approach that you know, really like kind of like the bigger in-house players, like the the Bontrager, the Roval, the Kadex. You know, those all three of those companies have massive amounts of R and D resources at their disposal. And again, they're not trying to play the, you know, we're bigger so we can be cheaper card. They are trying to play the, our wheels are better card. Yeah. And I think certainly there's an argument for that. I mean, I will say that having ridden a bunch of Roval wheels recently they're they're sweet. really they're really good they're, they're really good and they're, and they're on the like the cutting edge right i mean think about the wheels uh the one the, the brand new ones that just showed up on the SL7s that we just tested james like that massively the wide rapide. yeah yeah the repeat the massively wide sh- front shape in particular where you look down at a 28 mil tire and it it, it looks tiny in comparison to the rim and feels incredibly stable really really fast like they're doing cool stuff you know they're not they're not just just pumping out wheels that look exactly like everybody else's so i mean kudos where kudos do kdex exactly the same way they're doing they're doing i mean they're running those those crazy carbon spokes and things like that they're really 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 light there are there are brands that are still using their r&d might for good and not evil but I still think that it's an uphill battle for them. If, so, if Roval seriously thinks that they're going to get stuck on people who just bought a Trek, like if you just bought a Trek and you go put Roval wheels on it, it's not it's not going to happen anytime soon. It's just not. Um, to give kudos where kudos are due is uh, Bontrega. They actually, so prior to, bon, this is a few years ago now, but Bontrega, you know, the industry, all these OEM brands, I would say they had artificially inflated retail prices on all their 
on all their own wheels, all their own in-house products, um, to, you know, try to raise the perceived value of the bikes that these things were going on. And perhaps, you know, they never intended to sell too many of these wheels. It was all an OEM play. But Bontrager a few years ago actively lowered their prices of carbon wheels. I think they were actually, at one point, probably the cheapest high-end carbon wheel you could get. Uh, and everyone else has followed suit. I think they are responsible for why carbon wheels have become slightly more affordable, you know, outside of the the random brands that you export yourself. Um, but I think that that shows that they, at that point, decided, you know, our wheels are good enough and we can hit a price point that is actually competitive at a retail level and we can go after customers that aren't just Trek bike buyers and we can get our wheels on other brands. And locally, um, you know, one of our local stores here in Sydney sells a ton of Pinarellos. They're also a Trek dealer. And they actually put a lot of uh, Bontrager wheels onto Pinarello F12s, which is quite surprising, but you see it a lot. I mean, it it is surprising, again, if you look at it from this whole brand stigma thing. But I personally don't find it surprising at all from a functionality thing. Like, I, I took a fair bit of heat when, you know, I wrote that article about my, my personal 7 because I had you know, a, a Bontrager one-piece carbon cockpit on there, and I had Roval wheels on there, and some people were like, oh, it's a 7, what are you doing running that house brand stuff? Like, the stuff's really good. Why wouldn't I use yeah. it? I personally don't really care what the label says, and honestly, I don't really care what most people think. If I like it, I'm going to run it. Um, but So coming back to the, the bigger company and the R&D thing, though, I, Dave, I think I, I totally agree with you, and I also think that um, some of these bigger companies can also be credited with pushing the entire industry to make their wheels better because you know when you are really big and you have all this you know kind of financial support at your disposal it is a lot easier to offer these lifetime crash uh, crash replacement policies and like this this sort of like really comprehensive coverage that you see now that's really common with carbon wheels you know whether or not these smaller companies are able to make wheels that are as strong and you know whether or not the, the the rims of these bigger companies are as strong as they're claimed to be the fact that they are backing these wheels these you know the sales of these very expensive wheels with these kind of reassuring lifetime crash replacement policies is really comforting yep and they've forced other brands to follow suit i saw just yesterday zip announced that all 2021 products will will have such a warranty on them um, which is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying which to think back amazing, to how, yeah. how many how many carbon wheels have I broken in the last ten years? Granted, we are in a somewhat unique position in that we get paid to occasionally break things and like <laughs> try, try not not purposely, but you know, push them. Right? I've yeah. probably broken fifteen wheels in the last ten years. Oof! I think I've yeah. broken maybe three, and they were all cyclocross wheels. Yeah, I'll mountain be, bike wheels. I've done a, I've done two road wheels. That was not my fault those failed on their own uh yeah maybe maybe 10 but still a bunch <laughs> kaylee i I've feel like you and i have had this conversation about you breaking stuff on the mountain bike yeah and i i feel like the phrase bag of anvils keeps coming into my head no but just hucketh the gnar <laughs> yes yes uh i yeah i mean i broke one like casing a big jump you know that was my fault i'll, I'll own that one but i've also just broken a bunch you know, with regular sort of running 23 PSI and you just hit something and it breaks. And Bag yep. of anvils. I'm just going too fast, James. That's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we should move on from this. I think, Kaylee, I agree with you. These companies absolutely have an uphill battle as far as getting 
getting there, you know, getting people to, you know, shed this stigma, this perception that these, you know, basically house brands are not as good as the aftermarket brands. And I also agree that these things are really, really sweet and people should consider them more seriously if they are just looking at it from a pure performance perspective because a lot of them really are in all honesty, just better than these established aftermarket brands. So just yep. you know, consider what you're actually buying here. Agreed. All right. We are going to finish this week's episode with the Ask a Mechanic segment, which again, we are without Zach. I believe he is still churning butter. But I can hear him over there. I can hear him in the, in the other room, uh. just churning away. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the hand-churned butter to go along with my fresh sourdough. So I think this could go really well. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it turns out. Um, he keeps yelling something about cheese. I can't really make it out from here. But. You know, it's just, mm, just pushing a little bit too far. I just, I, I just want the butter. I want the hand-churned butter. Anyway, we are going to kick off this round of Ask a Mechanic with a question from Velo Club member Mike Shields. And this question maybe is ideally suited to Zach, but seeing as how we have all worked in bike shops in the past, I think we are all qualified to answer this one. He would like to know what sort of repairs would we suggest that people learn to do for themselves? Alternatively, which ones do we think customers should leave alone? I think one one has to make an accurate assessment of their mechanical aptitude mm. before before we fully answer this question. Yes. But there are some, there are some rough guidelines. What were you going to say, Rome? exactly the same which is i think it just greatly depends on on how capable the person is and and what they're willing to invest in having the right tools for the job as well oh i i would i would argue that point you need a hammer and a and a, <laughs> and a adjustable wrench and you'll be fine yeah uh, if you can't uh, fix it with a hammer it's not worth fixing right <laughs> exactly right, and, and just minutes ago we established that kaylee breaks a lot of things and we i do why. break yeah. some things uh yeah i mean but but okay so this question was what things should 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 someone learn right so let's make let's baseline assumption that they don't know much right now sure so in that case th- i think you should start off with things that might potentially go wrong out in the real world that's what i would work on learning first so replace a chain right because you can break a yeah. chain out in the real world uh adjust derailers because your bike can tip over at the coffee shop and you need to adjust your derailleur on the way back I think those are brakes, adjusting brakes. That's probably like the three places I would start. And then anything that involves s- screwing into the frame, you know, bottom brackets, anything that's being pressed in the frame, uh, anything that, you know, you can't see with the naked eye from the outside of the bike is maybe leave to the professionals for a little while. My, my advice is simpler, which is... Um the maintenance side of things i think consumers should learn themselves so basic drivetrain maintenance keeping your bike clean keeping your drivetrain clean uh you know even how to check for your own chain wear to to get an understanding of how that's tracking so you don't just blow past and wear out your entire drivetrain again Uh, optional totally optional yeah yeah uh knowing when you know you've gone too far with your brake pads uh changing your own tires all that type of stuff would be invaluable and would save you actual money over the long term. And then, you know, at that point, if you're doing all that stuff, you could probably get away with just having one or maybe two, depending on your mileage, uh, you know, big services by a professional mechanic, which actually keeps your bike running really well throughout the year. I've just that's realized that's I forgot to change my mom's rear brake pads on her e-bike. Oh, well I was just done, home and that Taylor. was one of my jobs. 
I think I heard some screaming before. I <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I went out riding with her, and I and she was on this bike, and then I looked at her rear, and like she's pr- she's got probably five rides left. Like it's it's dire. It's bad. I'll have to remind her not to. Yeah, the braking I'll, I'll pads, walk. the the backing pads will still help though. For yeah, while. I told her it, yeah. it'll you know it'll still work. It'll just be really loud. Yet again, let me remind people that Kaylee breaks a lot of things and he uses hammers. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Another Vela Club member, Richard Alexander, would like to know, is there any value anymore in high-end mechanical group sets, Shimano especially, and we're talking about it on the road here. If someone is not interested in electronic shifting, would we still recommend Dura-Ace or Altegra, or are they better off sticking with 105 and spending the extra cash elsewhere on the bike instead? Ooh, so the last piece of that question makes it complicated. I know, I know, right? Because well, like so- Dur- Durace and Altegra Mechanical are sweet, and they are they're, they're genuinely sweeter than 105, but not by that much. The first part of the question, if there's any value anymore in high-end mechanical group sets, I would absolutely say that there is, because mm-hmm. personally, I mean, I will say that when everything is working exactly as it should, I mean, electronic group sets work really well. I mean, DI2 is it's amazing. Every time I get on, I'm like, this stuff is incredible. Still, to this day, what, 12 years in or whatever. However, the high-end mechanical group sets are so refined these days. They work so well. They feel really good. They're a lot more affordable. They're easier to work on. I absolutely think there's value in it, and the stuff is fantastic. As opposed to, well, as for the, the question of Dura-Ace or Altegra or 105, I mean, I, I would say it's almost more in a sense of like, you know, what do you want as opposed to what do you need? Uh, in terms of, you know, need, you know, none of us need anything more than Ultegra. That stuff's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I would argue that functionally 105 is really just as good. Like you really can't tell in your hands. It's very, very, it, the, the difference is very, very small. And if you could... Yeah, and if you could take that savings and put it into you know nicer tires or you know nicer wheels, at that point I would say that you would end up with overall a better bike than you would if you dumped all the money into the group set and then had to skimp on something else like the spe- tires, especially. Yeah, my my point of view is that I'd I'd take the middle ground, which is Altegra is so close to being the performance of Durace, and you know there's still 180 200 gram weight penalty there. Um, but, but it's like half that, the price. Yeah, but it's half the price of Jure. So that's the val- that to me if you're wanting to build like a, you know, a really nice bike and then save some money to get some nice wheels, Altegra for me is is where the value's at. Um 105 is, you know, that that much heavier again and does feel that little bit clunkier to me. Um so yeah, I mean, for me Altegra is great and it's it's what I would probably build my own bike with if I was you know, in the market today to, to build a frame up, I'd probably pick Altegra Mechanical right now. Yeah, I mean, and certainly the, the cost savings between Dura-Ace and Altegra is a lot more than what you get from Altegra to 105. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unless you really have the money to spare, I probably wouldn't bother with Dura-Ace Mechanical as much as I like it. Um, because mm-hmm. yeah, for sure, Altegra is amazing. Okay, Can like, I, I'm, I'm putting a hand up for, for Red 22 here. Old school, yeah. kicking it old school. There's some deals to be had my- on on SRAM mechanical at this point. Eleven speed SRAM mechanical of any sort of, of any of the 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 variants. Uh, and it's, it's lighter. Great. It's really light. It's great stuff. You know, there's a reason why 
it, it really helps sort of propel SRAM into a real real competition with Shimano when that stuff first came out. And it's still very good. It's still very light. It's way lighter than an Altegra, definitely way lighter than a 105. For You could find it for, for a really good price. Uh, if you like double tap, you know, consider consider going that direction. I, I think it's, I, it's, it's nice stuff. Granted, things get a little bit complicated when you start talking about pairing that with hydraulics and things like that. But uh, it depends on exactly what you're building. But still, I'd put my hand up for... Take a look at some of the old ceramic mechanical. It's still really good stuff. I have it on my personal bike too. Yep. It is really good. Uh, moving on. Joy Pearson from Twitter would like to know, what is the easiest way to remove tires from a bike with disc brakes? This, this question's a little bit confusing, actually, because she said that she's asking for someone who doesn't have ridiculous strong grip strength as in women who ride solo and have a flat. So there are a couple of different ways that we can look at this here. Um, so she specifically mentioned tires, but then she mentioned a bike with disc brakes, which which those things don't necessarily go to get. Like a, a tire is not necessarily harder to get off a rim uh, just because you have disc brakes. But I'm actually wondering if she's talking about a wheel with a through axle from a bike Possibly. with a disc brake if the through axle is on really tight. Yeah. So just I've, in case, I've... we'll answer both of those versions of the question. I've run into that one before because uh, I'm a little bit stronger than my wife, and I'll put her through axles on and to a tightness that I do not think is particularly tight, but she still struggles to get the through axle off. And then she hates you. And then she hates me. Or she calls me to come get her when she gets a flat, which <laughs> is also possible. Uh, so yeah, I think that, well, first and foremost, make sure that your through axles are not on that tight uh I, I don't feel like i'm over tightening them but i'm you probably could put them on a little bit less tight than i do uh other than that i mean short of like traveling around with a breaker bar that you stick over the end of the through axle or travel or putting through axles in that take a allen key and bringing a big long allen key that's another solution uh but i don't think most people want to travel around with like a you know a seven inch long six mil allen key on their road bike most of the time yeah, that was going to be my take. Is uh, if you've got through axles, some some through axles are better than others. So I'm going to throw Giant under the bus here. Some of the, most of the through axles they put on their bike actually require you to do them up tighter than the lever length really makes it comfortable to do so. Um, they're quite inefficient. So you know if you've got a bike like that where you're con uh, constantly struggling to get the wheel tight enough and then struggling to undo it, I would actually recommend swapping those axles out, like Kaylee said for a bolt through type and then just getting a suitable multi-tool that gives you more leverage um yes it's another thing you probably have to carry but that's probably the best way to overcome this issue so the other thing that i would recommend is um i'm going to make the assumption just based on the question that joy is having her bike serviced at a bike shop um, i would recommend that before you leave the bike shop if you're having it there for service to check to make sure you can undo it by yourself first uh, because it is very possible that whoever worked on the bike tightened up to a, a point that you cannot remove the wheel um, and if you are putting it on yourself uh, and you're using a tool i would suggest using the tool that you are going to have with you when riding to install the through axle just to make sure that you that you're able to undo it um, just keep in mind that it does still need to be tight and it is not unheard of for through axles to come loose so just keep that in mind um, the 
other possibility of this question, however, if we look at it, you know, if, if she's asking how to remove tires from a rim that are particularly tight, yep. Joy, for that, I'm going to refer you to a nicely comprehensive article that Dave published a few months ago on, let's see, Dave, how did you phrase this? Like how to, how to remove an impossibly tight tire, something like that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it was more, it was, it was a couple of years ago at this point, at this point, but, um, but time merges together. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's how to remove an impossibly tight tire is what to Google for that one. In any event, uh, look that up, uh, and you know, we'll maybe try to remember to post, post a link in the show notes here. Um, but that has a lot of really handy tips on how to get your tire off the rim. If you were stuck on the side of the road with a flat. So hopefully that you hope you find all that stuff helpful. Swear at it. You could swear at it. You could. I don't think you want to. Right you want to make it feel bad about what it's done to you, and mm. then it might come off. Yeah, it turns out bikes don't have consciences. Let me go figure. Like, I don't, I don't think they really care. Uh, Michael Kirby from Twitter would like to know. This is a very appropriate question for the time and age that we're in right now. How much clearance does he need for gravel tires on a road bike? Because Michael is interested in running thirty-one millimeter Panaracer Gravel Kings on a specialized Alley Sprint. But Do he it. only has three millimeters of clearance at the chain stays. Hmm. Three millimeters. So here's the thing. So officially for most road bike and gravel bike tires, um, the industry standard is typically to have, well, on smaller tires, it's to have at least four millimeters of room at the closest spot anywhere on the frame or fork. And then for bigger tires, you're supposed to have at least six millimeters, I believe. So that three millimeters certainly falls underneath that. Um, you know, so officially we have to say that that is not a good idea. If you insist on doing that anyway, however, I think the degree to which you're successful in that is going to depend a lot on one, how strong you are and how hard you pedal. Uh, maybe two, how flexible your wheels and or frame are. And three, your level of risk. Because if that tire does end up rubbing on your frame, I will say it takes a shockingly little amount of time to wear through the paint, first of all, and potentially your frame. Like I have a friend who has a, uh, what does he have? He has a carbon fiber Jameis Renegade. It was one of their earlier carbon gravel bikes and decided to push it on the tire size. And then he now has a hole through his chainstay. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'd add a fourth, which is um, your, the conditions you ride in. So if you're constantly riding where it's muddy or wet, um, you're going to have to allow it. for more tire clearance than you would otherwise if you were in a dry conditions area where things don't stick to your tires. I say go for it. Maybe. <laughs> Come, coming from the guy who breaks everything. <laughs> don't Do not listen to Kaylee. Michael, Kirby, do not listen to Kaylee. <laughs> I think it'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm not and a that, lawyer. And that's, and that's Nor Kaylee Fretz, spelled F-R-E-T-Z, in case your lawyer wants to get involved. All right, last one, and then we're going to wrap up. Eric Olson on Twitter would like to know now when switching wheels on one bike, which is surprisingly common now that we are in this era of supposed one bike solutions, is there a way to switch between a two by 1128 and an 1136 without messing too much with the chain gap? Is there an easy way? Not really. What I would say is you want, I mean, you definitely need to run more chain with that 1136, no question. Um, and assuming you have a derailleur cage that can accommodate that 1136 already, probably what I would do is you're gonna have to buy a whole bunch of master links because what I would personally do is size the chain with the 1136, size it 
also with the 1128, figure out what the difference in the number of chain lengths is, and then install basically two sets of master lengths. So it lets you, you know, easily remove that length of lengths when you're swapping between cassettes. And the issue there is that length of chain is going to wear at a different rate, and you're going to be blowing through master lengths because those things really are not meant to be reusable. Yeah, I'd just run two different chains at that point. Or you could run two different chains. You could do that as well. And chains are not very expensive, so that would work as well. I would um, just run the chain too long. Yeah, well, uh, and Kaylee, I, I was working on your bike the other day. I did notice that the chain on your mosaic was too long, and you didn't yeah. really seem to care. Well, that's partly because the derailleur is not it's actually intended to take a 32. Yes, because, so your, just... the, because the SRAM Red 22 rear derailleur that I gave you is uh, a short cage, whereas the cassette that you're running on that thing really requires a bid cage, and you didn't bother changing that. No, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> just don't <laughs> ride. Just don't ride around in the in the you know little chain ring and like the eleven. It's, it's don't just don't do that. It's fine. Again, no, coming no from a person deal. who breaks a lot of things. Yeah, don't listen. Don't listen to Kaylee. It's fine. It's, it's fine. Dave, I, I'm gonna go I with am, your suggestion. I am the voice. I am the voice of. Not, I wouldn't yeah. say reason. I think reason is probably an overstatement. Where, where's my mute button? I, am I the moderator <laughs> here? Do I have the power to mute your mic? I hear that's a thing now. Where is that? Uh, um, no, I, hmm. I'm the voice of laziness. <laughs> Going back to the original question, which is, is there an easy way? I don't think once you're changing chains and then you're probably for best shifting, you're going to have to adjust the B tension of the derailleur as well. Um, yeah, it's not the quickest swap once, you know, you're swapping wheels, you're swapping a chain, you're sw changing the B tension. It's quite a bit of work. It's 28 to 36 was the, was the, yep. What was the, yep. yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's, that's pretty big. Uh, maybe don't big, take yeah. my, my suggestion of just leaving the same chain on there. You probably couldn't use about half your cassette when you're in the little you ring. You should definitely not listen to, to Kaylee's suggestion <laughs> because if you leave it too long, yes, you're going to end up with a lot of sag on a lot of the cassette. And if you leave it too short, you will literally rip the back end off of your bike. Yeah. yeah but i mean my my solution as as james sort of implied earlier was to just set it up for the biggest option basically the most chain needed and for me it works fine like i said as long as i don't cross chain the crap out of it then it's 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 totally okay and i've been running it like that for like two years hmm. but hmm. this this particular scenario is a little bit different so Right. I mean, well, honestly, like, uh, if you ran the two, you could run the two that were closer together and probably get away with it, get away with mm -hmm. a similar size chain. If you ran a 32 on the road wheels, then you're going 32 to 36 instead of 28 to 36. Maybe that's close enough that then you just lose, you know, you have a little bit of slack in the 34, 11, but everything else works fine. That wasn't his question, Kelly. Well, that was not his question. You know, uh -huh. I'm just providing solutions. I'm, right. I'm a yeah. solutions guy, James. Kaylee, Kaylee is providing bad solutions. All right, with that, with that, we are going to go ahead and wrap up here. And the moral of this episode is do not listen to Kaylee's mechanical advice. Zach, My I bikes hope were are, great. Zach, I hope you are finished churning that butter now because we could really use your, use your, use your expertise to counteract Kaylee here. I'm just, I'm the everyman. I represent the vast swaths of humanity that just really can't be bothered to like, yes, do all the yes. things properly. Kaylee, you re you represent the average person who repeatedly brings their bikes into Zach to repair once they have tried and failed to fix something. That's true. Um, given that I've just found out that uh, James doesn't have a moderator's mic and can't mute me, uh, I would put through a request that please send through all your tool questions. I would like some more tool questions to answer. <laughs> that, that would be good. Tool questions are always welcome because we do like to talk yeah. about tools. Mm. anyway 
that is going to be our show for today. Thanks for listening as always. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, if you liked what you heard, please consider becoming a Vela Club member because it really does help us bring you more of these episodes and gives us more freedom to explore topics that might be a little bit more difficult to explore sometimes. Also, please consider subscribing to this podcast on whatever format you listen to this on. And for sure, please, if you like the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast, tell your friends because the more people who listen to this podcast, the more likely we are to be able to continue bringing it to you. Which isn't really a doubt, we should say. <laughs> but more the merrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is we're going to do this anyway. We're, we are going to do this anyway. Could be, we could be talking to like our mothers and three other people. We'd be like, yep. Making a podcast. That is true. That is true. And just a reminder, you know, Mrs. Fretz, don't forget your son failed to replace the brake pads of all things on your on your bike. So I'm sure he still loves you anyway, but he might be a little bit neglectful. So go ahead and take care of that because he didn't. And with that, and with that, once again, don't listen to Kaylee. (laughs) We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. I bring them. I didn't say good solutions. I said solutions. Okay.